You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. My name is Danny Anderson, and I am Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Today we're talking with Dr. Marvin R. Wilson, who is Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Gordon College in Wenham, Massachusetts, and he has uh, just published a, a terrific new book called Exploring Our Hebraic Heritage, A Christian Theology of Roots and Renewal. This is published by William Erdman uh, Publishing Company, and it's just out. And Dr. Wilson has been kind enough to join us today to speak about the book. Dr. Wilson, how are you doing today? We're doing just uh, fine. Thank you, Danny. Uh, well, thank you again for joining us. And um, I just want to begin by asking you about this book and its place in your larger uh, research interest. It sort of follows on the heels of your book, Our Father Abraham, Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith which was also adapted into a, a, a public television series or, or, or a program. Uh, can you talk about the relationship between these books and your goal for this one? Well, yes. Uh, Our Father Abraham uh, sort of was written as a response to many questions I began to get as I started teaching in a Christian college in the area of particularly Old Testament studies. And uh, students were asking me questions uh, that I had no previous uh, study of. And I had to go back and uh, take a look at what was going on. Example, uh, why do Jews today often eat chicken or even fish at Passover instead of lamb? I couldn't answer that question. Uh, why do traditional Jews not embalm uh, bodies? I couldn't answer that question. Why do Jews at a wedding typically smash a glass under the foot of the bridegroom? I couldn't answer that question. A lot of my own personal ignorance at that early stage of my uh, uh, life as a teacher of uh the Jewish scriptures was I had very little appreciation of how Judaism evolved from ancient Judaism to rabbinic Judaism uh, to its modern expression. Now, at the end of the day, Christians and Jews share an awful lot in common, far more than we differ on. The reason uh, that is the case, to use an analogy, we have the same grandparents. Christians and Jews both go back to our ancestral religions expression in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and the prophets, ancient Israelite religion. Every major council of the church has always said, Every book in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, is fully inspired and authoritative in the life of the church. So the church has never made a distinction about those Jewish scriptures, as if one was inferior and the other one was superior. So we share that same grandparent, and that grandparent gave birth to uh, a parent religion, 
and that parent religion had many expressions. Today, scholars refer to it as Biblical Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, or pre-70 AD Judaism. That was the religion of Jesus and the Twelve. Now, that had many branches, obviously, Pharisaic Judaism, Sadducean Judaism, the Essenes, the Nazarenes, who were the earliest Jewish followers of Jesus. There were many Judaisms in the first century. And so... That is the religion that uh, gave birth to two children for nearly 2,000 years. These have been siblings locked in a rivalry of sorts, the synagogue and the church. Now, the biblical Judaism that gave uh, birth to Judaism after the temple was destroyed, that Judaism was what today we call rabbinic Judaism. And uh, rabbinic Judaism produced the Mishnah, about 200, the oral law, produced the Gemara, which was the commentary on that law. A lot of those teachings that developed in the academies over 300 years. And by 500, we have the Talmud, uh, which is that oral law, which involves a lot of dialogue, a lot of commentary, and a lot of material that most Christians really don't have much understanding of. Now, what I've tried to do in exploring our Hebraic heritage is to provide a theological sequel on the former work, which, as you said, was Our Father Abraham, Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith. And while both of these books... Uh, do try to explain the importance of early Jewish literature and an ongoing timeless theological conversation with the Jewish community, which is important for Christian understanding. What I've tried to do is to take a number of specific themes not dealt with in Our Father Abraham. Our Father Abraham uh, deals with the history of Jewish-Christian relations. It uh, deals with what it means to think Hebraically. It uh, deals with uh, uh, Christian and Jew in the New Testament and how the split, the parting of the ways, happened. It deals with individual themes, chapters on Passover, modern Israel, chapters on the importance of, of learning, and also how to build positive Christian-Jewish relations. What I've done in exploring our Hebraic heritage is to try to make the book more specifically theological or dealing with spiritual and ethical themes much more than I did in Our Father Abraham, which dealt with more cultural, linguistic, and historical matters. So the first two chapters, for example, in exploring our Hebraic heritage, my latest book, I deal with... Uh, uh, some of the hallmarks of Hebraic theology, and I deal with uh, theological methodology and, and he Hebraic roots, and some of the sources that we need in order to go back to our roots. The first 77% of the Bible is Old Testament material, and the New Testament 
While the outward dress is in Greek, because that was the lingua franca of New Testament times, the ideas conceptually behind that Greek are Hebraic to the core. In short, our tutors to Christ in the Christian tradition are Moses and the prophets, not Plato and the academies. So what we've tried to do in exploring our Hebraic heritage is to give people a greater appreciation of the family into which they, namely the Christian family, has been engrafted, to use Paul's words in Romans 11. Paul in Romans 11:18 says, don't you Gentiles become arrogant and proud. You stand in fear. You don't support the root. That metaphor there is the root of the olive tree, but the root supports you. And so Gentiles are by the mysterious uh, ingrafting process are engrafted into Israel. The way I teach Christianity is Christianity does not begin with Paul, does not begin with Jesus, but Christianity really, in terms of its antecedent, it really begins with Abraham. And the verse for that is Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. So it seems to me if, if Christians, all Christians, are Abraham's seed, not in the physical and lineal sense, but certainly in the spiritual sense, as one of our popes once said, spiritually, we are all Semites. And so in that sense, we look to Abraham as not just the father of the Jewish people. And while Christians have a slightly different take on Abraham being the father of every Christian believer and the importance in Abraham's life of faith and obedience to that faith and so forth. But Abraham really becomes the uh, bookends of the Bible, the election of Abraham and his people. And what do you see in the uh, Gospel of Luke? In the great Messianic banquet, there you see Abraham and some of the other ancient greats sitting at table with Jesus as the kingdom then comes to its fullest uh, and final estate. So, in a sense, our father Abraham and the story of Abraham and the people of Abraham and Gentile believers being engrafted into that Abrahamic stock is a story of continuity, discontinuity, as well as hope. Excellent. Um, the, the premise of your book is that there is a need for renewal, like our roots have rotted. You use this beautiful imagery throughout the book and uh, or we've let our roots rot. And um, I, are there some specific observations about Christian culture that uh, caused you to try and, and reconnect with those roots that you can talk about? Well, yes, I, I think the rotting of, of roots uh, was bound to happen because the Bible was given uh, in a Semitic uh, world, not in the Greek world, but the Bible was a product 
of the ancient Near East, uh, the Middle East. Uh, it comes from Asia. And the people who lived astride the Mediterranean uh, were Jewish people who lived and thought within that culture. Now, from around 325 or so BC, Hellenism started coming on strong. From the time of Alexander the Great, the dividing up of his empire among his four generals, and uh, more and more Jews were learning to speak Greek, express themselves in Greek, uh, because that was the lingua franca of the day. And of course, while most of the authors of the New Testament and some, even William Foxwell Albright, one of the great archaeologists of the 20th century, Albright even argued that Luke may have been Jewish. But certainly most of the authors of the New Testament were Jews, although they wrote in Greek. And of course, as the gospel began to move to the West, as it came into uh, the area of what would be modern day Turkey and moved over into Greece and into Italy and so forth, uh, the language of that time was, was Greek. But the message of the scripture uh, began to be adapted, not simply into the languages spoken by the people of this region of the central and more western countries surrounding the Mediterranean, but also it developed a different way of thinking about scripture. What I try to do in exploring our Hebraic heritage is to give people a little bit of appreciation of how Jews learn, how when you study, you always have to have a study partner to ask questions and to respond to questions. So it's far more dialogical where you learn as a dynamic living conversation, exchanging thoughts and ideas over a text. And, and so in one sense, this leaves uh, a, a conversation about a text never ended, where I fear in Christianity very often, we're satisfied with one word answers theologically or to a biblical problem. Uh, in, in Judaism, there's always that continual turning of that text over and over again. One of the sages of the Mishnah was uh, Ben Bagbag, which is a very funny name. And he came up with this idea of uh, turning the text over and over again because everything is in it. And so in Judaism... They will often speak of the Torah having 70 faces. And uh, you may start with the natural, straightforward, often the literal meaning of a text. But a text does not end with necessarily one meaning. 
there are often allegorical meanings and uh, symbolic meanings, or it may hint at something, or it may have deeper esoteric and mysterious meanings. Um, but my point here is that when these other cultures, let's take in the Greek world, who were the ancient Greeks? Well, they were great systematizers. While Judaism has maintained over the centuries, the ability to understand a text is to be part of that conversation about the text, that dialogical back and forth reflection on the text by more than one person, which leaves dangling participles, loose ends, the things that are not fully buttoned up and brought to a conclusion. The Greeks, on the other hand, tended to be people who were systematizers. They looked at things rationally, coherently, uh, logically, moved from a premise to a conclusion. They were skilled debaters. You know, if we need an attorney today, the best person to get is somebody that thinks like a Greek. And while that has its place, certainly in our world today, I think some of the philosophers in the Greek world who got a hold of the Hebrew Bible brought with them or imposed with them a far greater systematic approach to understanding scripture uh, than the messiness that sometimes comes about through a Jewish understanding of scripture. And while system can be very useful and logical, when we study Christian doctrine, we want categories of thought, we want to break down various types of theologies into logical categories. Uh, what we must not do is over-systematize. And I, I think a negative effect of uh, moving into the Greek world was the de-Judaization of the Bible which reflects that Semitic uh, culture. When you look at Judaism today, Jews have very few creeds. In fact, they're not a creedal religion. Uh, the closest thing the Jewish uh, community ever came to a creed was by, by Maimonides in the uh, early 1200s, what is called the 13 Articles of Faith which uh, outlines some basic uh, Jewish beliefs. But even there, it's not something that all Jews must subscribe to. Jews uh, tend to describe themselves as people committed to Torah, and Christians would tend to describe themselves, if they needed one word, uh, committed to Christ. When Jews look at Torah, however, they uh, interpret that much more conversationally and dialogically, while Christians often bind themselves to other Christians with certain creeds, certain statements of faith, certain dogmas that they have in common. So I think 
there is a, a, a difference. And I think uh, Hellenization also brought with it not simply uh, a greater structure to Christian thinking than perhaps the scriptures themselves uh, were, were, were written to fit into. In other words, uh, the, the idea that one pours every text into some predetermined category of thinking, scripture should not be a slave to any system. So what we learn from Jewish study is a more inductive study of the text rather than a deductive uh, series of answers already given creedally. So Christians can learn from Jews that way. And I think also in the Hellenistic world, uh, there was more extensive allegorization, crystallogicalization, uh, a more symbolic reading of scripture that happened. So when you look at people like Origen from around the second century uh, AD and uh, others, Origen being one of the greatest of the Greek fathers, uh, but you also pick some of this up even in Philo about 50 years before the time of Jesus. Um, this this approach, which was not solely uh, that of uh, Christians influenced by uh, Hellenistic uh, thinking, but even some Jews, as I say, like Philo, were involved in that. And there is even some of that in the New Testament. But it's much more extensively done uh, through Hellenism. And this crept into the church fathers then. And many of the church fathers then did not necessarily take Israel seriously. Israel could be spiritualized away into an otherworldly Israel rather than the Israel of Basara Vadam, the Israel of flesh and blood, the Israel of this world. And the church could say, we have superseded Israel. So... I, I do think to hear the Bible in its original context uh, allows us to to go back and hear things before it becomes Latinized, Westernized, Hellenized, and the expressions of uh, Christianity today uh, are contextualized into uh, different parts of the world and, and cultures. But I do think going back to trying to uncover the way the uh, original hearers uh, heard that and to appreciate it from that point of view uh, is, is very Im important. Christians often stress the fact the Bible is the word of God and it is indeed God's voice, but it's also in human words. And the human side of uh, biblical inspiration, the literary beauty of the Bible, the artistry of Hebrew poetry is one of the great undiscovered uh, uh, aspects of uh, biblical study that Jewish scholarship, because one third of the Old Testament is poetry. 
has has opened uh, to to many Christians. But to hear the assonance, to hear the onomatopoetic expressions, uh, to to be able to read these things, uh, I think adds something when you can read it in the original Hebrew. The uh, you can hear the hoof beats of the horse in the song of Deborah, Dakarot, Dakarot, just like the English word galloping, galloping. The uh, the structure of that in the book of Isaiah, there is the crashing of waves on the Mediterranean coastline over the rocks, and you hear the sibilance, the hissing, the essing uh, sounds as those waves break uh, on the shore. The uh, Bible, when it is read in translation, uh, you always lose something in the process. And I just would point out here, it's very interesting, of the three Abrahamic monotheistic religions, Islam reads the Quran in Arabic. Judaism continues to read the Torah three times a week, typically, in the synagogues around America. And certainly on Shabbat, the Torah is taken out and it is read in the original. It's, it's only the church that does not really consistently do this. The Greek Orthodox uh, use Greek in their services, certainly reflecting the Greek New Testament. But I think that tradition of hearing scripture in its original setting adds so much to our understanding and appreciation of the artistry that the Bible is. And it, at one point you talk about in the book how there's a delight in the law, a delight of the law for uh, a Jewish, uh, 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 a Jew. And I think that part of what you're getting at there is the reason why. Um, I think that's very interesting. This is also some, uh, a topic which I think makes your book interesting for a listener of this podcast, of the Christian Humanist podcast, because it is sort of where art and theology sort of meet, uh, uh, like in the scriptures themselves. Your book also provides, I think, a few challenges for some evangelicals. Um, one being, you mentioned before, the one the preference sometimes for one-word answers and sort of settled questions and these sorts of things in Christian culture generally. Um, and you talk about in the book how about the importance of ongoing revelation. And I think this is sort of connected to your idea of the dialectic that uh, is inherent in, in Jewish religious practice. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the idea of ongoing revelation with perhaps talking about uh, the Midrash and all these sorts of things. Uh, Judaism uh, believes that revelation uh, certainly begins at Sinai. And the meaning of Sinai is, is God coming to give the law. And while Jews have great differences, as do Christians for that matter, on uh, questions of how much of the law was given on Sinai, um, uh, the uh, relation of the oral law, which... According to Pirkei Avot, the most ethical tractate of the Mishnah, 
Turkey Avot says the oral law can be traced right back to Sinai uh, from Moses passed on to uh, Joshua and the elders and so forth. Most Christians do not uh, accept the idea in my understanding of Christianity that the oral law of Judaism is of equal value to the written law being uh, equally inspired as if it comes directly from God. And while there's some very traditional Jews that believe those two are very close together, uh, most Christians make a very careful distinction, certainly Christians in the Protestant tradition, between uh, scripture itself and the understanding of that scripture historically, which has come down through commentary, through reflection, through the writings of the church fathers, uh, and into the modern world. So that in the Protestant tradition, when one argues that the Bible is the word of God and fully authoritative for faith and practice, one argues that the written text, and for us today, of course, it's a translation of a translation of a translation. Um, but we do make a distinction between the text of scripture itself and what we think it means. What I try to bring out in my new book, Exploring Our Hebraic Heritage, is the fact that there's a difference between theology and scripture itself. We argue then that, that scripture itself, written, is the word of God, if we are traditional Protestant Christians. On the other hand, we do believe that the commentaries and discussions and thoughts about that, reflections on the Bible, and really that's what theology is, it's thinking and reflecting about God in relation to his world. Now, Theological reflection is the product of fallible human beings. It is the product of both professional theologians as well as lay people who think theologically. And therefore, since human beings have lacunae in their thinking, they have gaps, they are people who come to the scripture even though they try to do it objectively, they do have biases. They, they do not come to it with a total tabula rasa, a blank slate. We bring our baggage with us every time we open the Bible. And so, therefore, any theological reflection has to be vetted in many ways or as I put it in my book, has to be written with pencil, with an eraser, because of the possibility it can be restated. Not that every theological thought is up for grabs and nothing can be glued down. I don't mean that at all. 
but I do mean that theology being the product of human reflection may be incomplete, may be partial, may need updating in language based on new manuscript discoveries, based on um, some uh, further uh, discussion. Let's just take the passion play, since today we are talking about Christian-Jewish relations and our Hebraic heritage. When the Oberammergau passion play in, uh, in Germany, in Bavaria, uh, had some very anti-Semitic stereotypes from the medieval period uh, being reflected in the way that play was being acted out in some of the lines in that play, over a process of time, that play was looked at very carefully and changes were made. I mean, Martin Luther said some terrible things about the Jewish people, about which the uh, Lutheran uh, worldwide communion has renounced those words and disassociated themselves with them. As Luther called for the driving of Jews out of Germany for all times, they are venomous uh, people of the devil. Uh, their books are to be taken and burned, and uh, uh, they are venomous as snakes. Some very, very uh, harsh things being said from the lips of uh, this one we venerate for so many uh, excellent contributions to the theological mind. So there are blind spots every theologian has, and the best checks and balances here is uh, to continually reflect on uh, on the uh, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, to be part of that timeless conversation, to tweak theology where it needs to be tweaked, to study theology in a broader context. One of the things I try to do in exploring our Hebraic heritage is to say, I think most Christians in the Protestant tradition have probably been influenced more by Reformed theology that talks about God as being transcendent, sovereign, uh, over the world, controlling the world. That's a truth that's very strongly taught in Scripture. But in my opinion, in certain Protestant circles that are not influenced by Calvin and his writings, for example, there's been uh, a need for bringing out the eminence of God. God's other book is nature. And the heavens declare the glory of God. His presence fills the earth. Or when we listen to the words of the popular song by uh, Mr. Lane, every time I hear a newborn baby cry, or touch a leaf, or see the sky, I know why I believe. God has revealed himself. His presence fills the universe, where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm in, in 
Jesus' name. Uh, the Spirit is present. He is present. Uh, and what we learn from Judaism, particularly the Hasidic wing of Judaism, is the emphasis on the eminence of God. Now, the reason I think that is important, because it's a corrective to some of the Greek thinking that results in a kind of dualism. What kind of a dualism? Well, the, uh, the uh, Neoplatonic and later the Gnostic thinkers said the material world is inferior to, the physical body is inferior to, the spiritual world, which is the real and the eternal world. And, and so this kind of thinking then says that we need to have a more unitary view of spirituality. It is what Martin Buber described as pan-sacramentalism. And I use that word in the book because it reminds us, as the Episcopalian Eucharist puts it, it is indeed good and proper at all times and all places to give you thanks and praise. Spirituality, then, according to the Hebraic tradition, is not a spigot you turn on and off when you want to do overtly spiritual things, and then the rest of your life is lived in other categories that are far more secular by definition. But rather, as, as Heschel reminds us, there is a sacred humanism. That is, God is present in this world, in our occupations. What I teach my students at a Christian college, at Gordon College, is there are no non-sacred majors and there are no non-sacred professions. If the Bible makes any distinction, it is always between what is sinful and the other, which simply means Christians are in all phases of life serving the Lord, as Bob Dylan, a.k.a. Robert Zimmerman, who happened to be Jewish, once put it, you got to serve somebody. So so I, I do think this point that we are on, that the imminence of God uh, reminds us of this idea of biblical holism, H-O-L-I-S-M or W-H-O-L-I-S-M. Uh, that is, you as a professor of English are doing something no less sacred than I, where I teach the Holy Scriptures themselves. So we don't want that dichotomy. And that's one of the things we learn from the Jewish tradition that the imminence of God, the spirituality, that prayer on all occasions as traditional Judaism does, 100 uh, blessings, utterances of praise and thanksgiving to the Almighty throughout the given day. As you process all the phenomena of life you come across, there's a prayer to thank God you can urinate. There's a prayer to thank God when you smell a flower. 
There's a prayer to thank God when you see a comet or a rainbow. There's a prayer when you stand in the presence of a sage and listen. There's a, uh, a, a prayer to give thanks to God before entering into the act of sexual intercourse. There is a prayer to thank God for, for the hearing of good news as well as for the hearing of bad news. In short, this holistic understanding is at the heart of what in Romans 2, Paul talks about what it means to be a Jew. A Jew is one who is a person of praise. And Yehuda, which was the name given to one of Jacob's sons, Judah, it's praise, thanksgiving, singing, chanting. And so the Jew who understands his origin sees this wonderful collection of poetry set to music. Tehillim, or the book of Psalms, which are many of them praises to the Almighty in the various mood swings of life. When you're in the swamp of despair, as well as on the Matterhorn of uh, feeling God's presence and everything in between. And that's why the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, a beautiful part of the Hebrew Bible and a place where Christians and Jews can meet. I had a wonderful series I ran four or five years ago. I had never done it before. We brought four leading Jewish scholars uh, into our convocation series here at the college. And I I said, you choose the psalm. We want you to give an exposition of your favorite psalm to our student body. And uh, I called it Exploring Psalms with the Rabbis. Now, in the earliest church, we know that to be admitted to the highest clergy, order of clergy by the 5th century, you had to commit to memory all 150 psalms. As an, and as a matter of fact, we know that these materials were, were memorized. Some 20% of the New Testament are quotations from the book of Psalms, which deeply influenced Jesus. He's tempted by Satan. What does he do? He quotes both Psalms and Deuteronomy. And the Psalms in Paul's life as he draws on that material. So this is part of our Hebraic heritage. And I think for Christians, in understanding the notion of ongoing revelation, we would probably use a different term for that. Uh, God continues to speak through his word, but we make a different, uh, we use different terminology uh, for uh, God speaking through scripture, because never do we take, no matter if we believe the charismata, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are fully active in the church today, never can we take that word and raise it up to a level equal to scripture. Rather, that word is to be tested by the written word of scripture. It may be a further 
explication, application, uh, deeper uh, way of understanding that for a particular context within the church. But Christians view scripture itself as being unique. Judaism, however, as a final word on this, the written law and the oral law did interact very closely with each other. And therefore, a very careful distinction was not always made the way, say, Protestant Christians do today between the written word of God and uh, human commentary on that word. I'll give you an example. The first commandment in the Bible is, in Hebrew, peru uravu. Translation, be fruitful and increase. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. That particular commandment in Scripture, which is at the heart of understanding human sexuality, because it deals with the family, it uh, deals with everything that God is depicted there in the early chapters of Genesis as creating and pronouncing it tov or tov ma'od, very good. And here we are left wondering how many children fulfills the divine commandment given to Israel, be fruitful and multiply. Well, the rabbis and the sages of Israel in particular uh, began a discussion of this. And within uh, the community over the many centuries from the time that was originally given up until the time the commentary, which today we know as the oral law and the commentary on that oral law, Mishnah Gemara together equal Talmud, as I said earlier. Well, the rabbis addressed that question. And both Hillel and Shammai were two rabbinic uh, 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 leaders whose disciples have over 300 separate debates found in the Talmud. And in the discussion of Hillel and Shammai, Shammai being the stricter, he said, uh, two sons can fulfill that commandment. Where Hillel was far more open, compassionate, flexible, merciful, very often and open-ended uh, in, in his conclusions, he said a boy and a girl can fulfill that particular commandment. And so why do we need then that oral law? The two flowed together. Uh, when Paul tells us in his most autobiographical epistle, which is 2 Corinthians, we know more about his personal life there than any other epistle he wrote. He says he was flogged by the Jews with uh, this flogging which took place in relation to uh, Jewish law on five occasions. And Paul was flogged 
39 times. Now, the Old Testament law forbade flogging more than 40 times. Why did Paul get 39 lashes or 40 less one to use the language of one version? Well, we know from our study of the oral law from tractate Makot, which means uh, lashes, that or strikes, that one being lashed had to take 26 lashes on the back and 13 on the chest. And you left a margin around the law, a hedge of one to make sure you did not exceed that. So the oral law helps us really understand Judaism, certain texts in the New Testament, where the oral law was actually how Jews were applying the written law, or if there was no one way of understanding this, this oral law is to make it analogous to the Constitution. In America, we have a Constitution, but we also have amendments to the Constitution. We have amendments to the Constitution because the Constitution didn't cover everything. And so the amendments are brought in in order to give further explication to, adopt, uh, to, to the Constitution. And so together, they are both useful and valuable and are considered uh, authoritative uh, in our country. And so the oral law should not be quickly dismissed. Oh, this is the thinking of people. It was the practice that had grown up and developed within a community that was not fossilized. When Jews lost their temple, they had to become ingenious. They had to uh, see Judaism as expanding in the diaspora, where now, as the rabbis put it, the table of your home where you break bread together is going to be as sacred as the Holy of Holies and the the altar there. The idea being that the father in the home now would be the priest. And now the study of Torah could pay, take place in the diaspora, in the home, and in very untraditional places now that the temple had been lost. And so Judaism being able to reinvent itself has been one of the keys to its survival over the centuries. You know, since you brought up Bob Dylan, um, I uh, was thinking actually of a, uh, a recent Coen Brothers movie called A Serious Man. And in that movie, there's a this ancient sage rabbi who everyone goes to for wisdom. The only thing we ever really hear him do is quote Jefferson Airplane. And so there is this sense of uh, this uh, this ongoing uh, meditation on God through the popular culture, even of the 1960s in that movie. Um, and so I think a lot of, there are a lot of implications for 
your book in terms of higher education. One formal feature of the book that I noticed was that each chapter ends with 30 to 50 in-depth, open-ended questions. It's as if you were trying to encourage the type of ongoing inquiry uh, that you've just been speaking about. What uh, do you see Christian higher education as needing to do uh, in terms of this book? Like, what can we do as an institution? Uh, and this is just sort of a final question to uh, let us think about uh, what we can do with the information you're giving us. Well, I think, first of all, we need to check the curriculum in our Christian colleges and certainly uh, also in, in our seminaries to make sure that the Bible of Jesus, our Old Testament, gets uh, its proper emphasis. I know of seminaries that have eliminated uh, all biblical languages, or if they've kept one, it's Greek. But Hebrew, if it's offered at all, is, is optional. Right there is the expression of what I like to call Neo-Martianism, capital M-A-R-C-I-O-N-I-S-M. Martian was a church father in the 140s who uh, said that the whole Old Testament witnessed to a different god, a dirty bully, a god of wars and, uh, and uh, bloody battles and slavery and other things. And so he said, chuck it, get rid of it, get rid of the whole Old Testament uh, because the Jesus of the New Testament is a different god. Now, when Martian was uh, brought uh, before the church for trial, he was, uh, his views were excommunicated from the church. And fortunately, that was the case because uh, Martian, who wanted nothing to do with the Old Testament except to chuck it, was not an acceptable solution. Uh, Neo-Martianism exists today where we see uh, the subtleties of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism in certain pockets of the church. Uh, uh, Neo-Martianism is found in our seminaries when you have twice the number of courses in the New Testament than the Old Testament. And I go back to where I began this this interview. I said Christianity starts with Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. Christianity was not invented out of whole cloth. Uh, Christianity was a movement that grew out of Judaism, and uh, and Christianity sadly has seen itself apart from Judaism instead of apart, formed from, developed out of Judaism. Now, I so I, I think we need to do a better job in the courses we offer. I think in our churches and our Bible studies, we, we have to do what the early church was absolutely forced to do. They had no other option. Remember, Christianity for the first 20 years was a movement 100% within Judaism. From roughly AD 29 to AD 49, which was 
the date of the Council of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, during those 20 years, uh, you had to be a member of the Jewish community to be part of the church. This movement we might call today the Jesus movement. But it was only after the Council of Jerusalem that uh, Gentiles, based upon their faith in Jesus and by the grace of God, could uh, join their Jewish brothers and sisters uh, who formed the fledgling Jewish messianic community. What happened over the next century or two, the numbers became outstanding in terms of the Gentiles that became believers. And so the Jews rapidly became a minority uh, within a movement that was 100% Jewish. So just because we look out in the church on a Sunday morning today and see it uh, almost entirely Gentiles in many churches is an accident of history. It's not the way it began. And so we, we do need to go back. We know the pressure that we'd have to take Passover seriously, Hanukkah seriously. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Jen, uh, John 10, 22 says he did. Uh, we'd have to take Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, seriously. The Puritans did. Apparently, Governor Bradford in the Mass Bay Colony patterned the first American Thanksgiving according to the Jewish festival of booths and huts, which was a time of harvest uh, of various things. And so I, th I think our, our appreciation of this can be greatly enhanced. And what we need to do in higher education, particularly in Christian higher education, is stop talking to ourselves all the time and start getting involved in interfaith dialogue. My life as a scholar has been radically changed uh, by taking my students to synagogues, by interacting with rabbis. I've had the good fortune now of co-editing four books with rabbis over the years, and over 450 field trips I have done with my students. These are undergraduates. I'm I'm teaching. I want them to know something about the Torah. I want them to know something about Jewish worship. I don't want them to be ignorant if they're teaching public school and a Jewish mother uh, comes up uh, and wants to talk to them about their child being one of a minority in that classroom. I want people informed about these things. I also feel that rabbis in particular and Jewish scholarship enrich in many wonderful ways Christian understanding of scripture. And what I briefly try to bring out in my new book is how some of the new uh, understanding of Jesus that we've had in the last decade or two in the church, where scholars like Amy Jill Levine of uh, Vanderbilt, and of course the uh, deceased uh, David Flusser, who wrote the definitive article on, on Jesus in the Encyclopedia Judaica, uh, uh, 
uh, Flusser, uh, of course, was a fantastic scholar, had memorized the New Testament in Greek, but it shows us that really uh, the life as well as the teachings of Jesus are Jewish to the core. So we need to get away from uh, this idea. Uh, some Jews have the idea that, well, whatever Jesus taught, it's not what we Jews believe. That is very wrong-headed. And one of the things that Jewish scholarship is doing for Jews as well as Christians today is reintroducing uh, Jesus uh, to Jews as one of their people and putting him in his Jewish milieu and helping Christians understand the Jewish background uh, to the Gospels. And I think enlarging this conversation, engaging in, in dialogue, uh, this has opened up considerably from when I began. It's not uncommon today to take my students to uh, synagogues, uh, conservative synagogues, reform synagogues, and other synagogues, and hear a rabbi bring Jesus up in a sermon. This would never have been done uh, 30 or 40 years ago, or rarely done. And so uh, the conversation is a much broader conversation today as Jews are understanding how Jewish Christianity really is in its origin. And uh, Christians are coming to appreciate Jews who become a wonderful resource in helping them uncover their Jewish roots. So in some then, I think my book, Exploring Our Hebraic Heritage, is a chance to help Christians realize on some of the themes I deal with, like the image of God, uh, talking about Israel's struggle with God and asking tough questions of God, as Abraham, Jacob, uh, or uh, Jeremiah in particular did as they wrestled uh, with God, the insights that we can gain from Jews on worship. I have a chapter on a life of worship, on approaching God and coming uh, to be people of praise, entering into Israel's uh, calling, uh, to be people of thanksgiving, people who learn things about repentance, Jews are forced to deal with repentance when we come into the fall every year as we come to Rosh Hashanah. And Christians can learn from Jews what this call of John the Baptist is all about. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the need to acknowledge uh, our uh, sins and to show regret and resolve uh, to change and to become reconciled anew. Uh, this is sage advice, as I talk about it in the book, but it's where the rabbis can help Jews what uh, understands uh, rap, uh, the, the rabbis can help Christians understand what teshuvah or turning around repentance is all about. So we learn from each other and uh, 
this approach, I think, uh, keeps Christians from just talking to themselves all the time. I think we can get new insights into an ancient text by allowing those people who wrote the book and have taught the book and had it a lot longer than we who are Christians. And the things that we can learn from that engagement of the text can make Christians a lot wiser, a lot deeper, and a lot richer because of it. Well, Dr. Wilson, that is a great way to sum this up. I really did enjoy reading your book and the the connections that you explore for us that are already there. Uh, you make a really compelling case for uh, the research you've done is a, a helpful way to set up this uh, this relationship that uh, really should be re-explored. Um, and I uh, appreciated reading the book, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about it today. Um, uh, we've been talking to Marvin R. Wilson. Dr. Wilson is a professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Gordon College, and his new book is called Exploring Our Hebraic Heritage, uh, Christian Theology of Roots and Renewal. Dr. Wilson, thank you so much. You're quite welcome.